Welcome back, fellow brain tools. If you're enjoying the content, loving the show, the potty, uh, subscribe to whichever podcast platform you're on now or follow and join in the journey on LinkedIn and Instagram brain tools podcast right there. Oh yeah, click that button. This is episode 26 of Brain Tools, part three of the Brains at Work series. We're glad you're here. What are we covering today, Sam? Today, we'll be talking about trust and connection at work. What triggers trust? The brain's trust algorithm. Talk a little bit about oxytocin, the beautiful mess effect, and give you four very practical brain tools to build more trust with your workplace and your relationships at work. Very excited to get into it. So let's kick it off. Welcome to episode three of Brains at Work. Today, we'll be talking about trust. Here with Kieran again. How are you, my friend? Very good as always, mate. And a very timely episode, I dare say. How about yourself? Um, I'm going very well. And timely is an understatement. There is a lot going on in the world and in the workplace to do with trust. It's so interesting you say that because I think when I was looking into this, there was a 2016 study of CEOs from... Our mates, PwC, because we're obviously great mates, and they reported that 55% of CEOs think a lack of trust is a threat to their organizational growth. And so it's very clear that there's an awareness that trust is important, but possibly people struggling, especially given what's happened over the past year, two years, that might have been even exacerbated. Absolutely. Really fantastic stat there from little PwC. By the way, if you want to be friends with us, PwC, we'll take that. It is... (laughs) You're totally right though. And it's something I've noticed personally in my relationships with my friends that it's a lot harder to build trust and connection through a screen, through contracting, for example, uh, with some of my remote clients, I'm building relationships via Zoom rather than in person. And there's also some recent data coming out that's a little bit scary that says we're in a, a time of all time low levels of trust in employees. Almost one in three employees don't trust their employees, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer. And I would say this also goes the same for, for leaders with working from home and a lack of visibility. I have quite a few friends in leadership positions, just like yourself, in other organizations who really worry about what their employees are actually doing on a day-to-day basis when they're working from home, when they can't see them and, and just fly past the deck desk. And so I think the, the other side of this is coming out of the COVID craziness in Australia. I, I have lots of friends who are currently job switching or moving into new roles and the concern is how they build trust and connection quickly in a new job when half the time they're now behind a screen. That's the difficulty, isn't it? Like when you look at trust, trust on a one-on-one level is hard enough, but scaling mm. trust in an organization is also really difficult. Like how so do you get tough. hundreds of people who don't really know each other to trust uh, each other on their sort of escapade to achieve a mission or vision? And there was an interesting uh, story here that I have for you. You know, you know Wells Fargo, my friend? Uh, look, I've heard of them. Little company? Yeah, little company. Just a bank. Just chilling <laughs> in America. I just know the stadiums. I can't remember. What, you know what team? Wells Fargo Center? Wells oh, Fargo Center. no, I don't. Yeah, Wells Fargo Center. Mm, we're going to have to look that up. We're going to have to look it up afterwards. Up. Please do. But 2015, there was it was incredibly interesting that they had this strategy, right, that was about cross-selling. So they were going to sell their existing customers even more products. And it's a really sound strategy, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot easier to sell to existing customers than it is to get new ones, as you know. But something went really wrong. They pushed this cross-selling strategy. And so the people down who were actually doing 
the selling, it wasn't being like they weren't responding. The customers weren't because they, you know, had finite pockets. They didn't have that much cash. And but they kept pushing this and pushing it. And so what happened is these people started creating fake customers. They started creating fake sales. And so they crossed these ethical boundaries. And it was a really clear issue with trust that the individuals who were selling couldn't actually say upwards, hey, this is not working. You shouldn't do this. And it showed a really clear example of when a trust trust in an organization is clearly not working and people don't feel safe. Super interesting, mate. Yeah, wild is the word I'd use and just shows that relationship between trust stretching both ways and mistrust. Absolutely. And I think when I was looking into this on a personal level, have you ever experienced this in a work environment? Just sort of like, I won't say like horrific trust, but just low levels of trust between people. Yeah, I have. And I've also seen this happen uh, in a sales environment where there are unrealistic expectations and lots of pressure put on salespeople. And as a result of a lack of trust in their ability to execute, then they false report activity metrics. For example, they say, I called 150 people today. They called two. I saw that a lot in a couple of roles I've been in. So I know that that, that trust level um, and the expectations that tie into it go both ways. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm so with you. And like, if we flip this, I'm not saying Google's the best thing ever, right? But they've done a, they've done a, a research study called Classic Aristotle. Not sure why, but sure, go with it. Okay. In 2012, and it was basically looking into high-performance teams. Super, super interesting. And they found this, that one of the common traits among their high-performing teams were high trust and high psychological safety. These people could voice their opinion without fear of punishment. And so they were as close to truth as possible, which means they were actually moving forward in reality, which is a really, really big thing. And so the question I suppose you and I have got today is how do you actually create organizational trust? And what's the neuroscience to support this? And I think that's the question we're going to interrogate today, which I'm very excited for. Yeah, that is the question we're going to dig around into. And it's always good to kick off with some some science and to talk about the scientists who are leading. Wait, do we talk about science on this show? Uh, very occasionally. <laughs> but we also need to put forward the method message that we are not the people doing the research. And so yes. we're just really supporting and getting the word out for these scientists. Um, the question is why care about workplace trust aside from all those things we just talked about? Well, there's Dr. Paul Zak, who's kind of the godfather of OT research, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, who spent the last 15 years studying trust, the brain, oxytocin, and high-performance organizations. He said, compared with people at low-trust companies, people at high-trust companies report 74% less stress, wow. 106% more energy at work, 50% higher productivity, 13% fewer sick days, 76% more engagement, 29% more satisfaction with their lives and 40% less burnout. Those stats are astounding and directly tied into all his work researching trust and high-performing organizations. That hits you in the face because yeah. when we look at episode, like so the part one, part two, if you haven't checked that out on productivity and resilience, those are directly correlated and linked with workplace trust. And it seems that like trust seems to be this root cause of a lot of problems that companies have and individuals have. And Sam, when we sort of think about a process, right, and you link it all the way through, mm. people will always look at retention or employee turnover and be like, oh, no, that's so low. What's going on? Without realizing if you trace all the way back, if they're you know, you're not retaining people, they're not engaged. And if they're not engaged, there's no trust. And if there's no trust, there's clearly no safety. And so what's really important to recognize is what trust actually is and how we can split it into, I suppose, two components, so to speak. So Sam, I have to tell you, there's apparently two different types of trust that we can segment. 
I didn't know about this. There's two types of trust. I'm ready. I'm ready to deliver because your stats just hit me in the face. Two <laughs> types of trust, cognitive trust and affective trust. And they're mutually reinforcing. And cognitive trust is, can I trust in your ability to get the job done? It's your accomplishments, it's your skills, it's your reliability at the workplace. But the affective side of it is, do I care about you? Do I actually care about your well-being? Do I care about your life? And so that's the emotional closeness, it's the empathy, it's the friendship we talk about. And so I think it's really important to understand the difference between those two because you want to hire the right people in a workplace, you want to work with really high-performing people, but you also want to build relationships with them. And so trust goes both of those ways, which um, is, I suppose, a, a unique frame to what we conventionally think is just trust, I trust you. Yeah, it's a unique way of looking at it with those two components and it makes a lot of sense because it's not just how you feel about someone, whether you feel you can trust them, but it's also how you feel about whether they can accomplish the job, especially in a work scenario. Absolutely. And like, look, I'll, I'll be honest, like when you do work with people that you feel uh, you know, aren't on the same wavelength in terms of getting that stuff done. When you're waiting on stuff from them, it's so demoralizing and you yourself become mm. disengaged. Not saying we're the, the greatest employees or greatest workers ever, but it happens <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah, I can imagine you probably see a little bit more of it there than I would being in a leadership position. You're really relying on people to get their work done. And so when there is that discrepancy between how much you trust their ability to do that work and how much you care about them, it's, that's going to cause some issues. So if we look at trust and we look at trust in the brain, what triggers trust, there's actually a bit of a, a, a trust algorithm. And that sounds a little bit sciencey. Nah, I love it. You said algorithm and I'm just like, come on, give me these if-then plans. I'm ready. <laughs> I, I promise you this is not too nerdy. So if you're, you're not a neuro nerd like us, that's okay. That's not a problem because our brains are hardwired to trust others. We, we really want to trust others. And I'll give you an example. You know how there are certain people you meet and you just trust straight away and you just feel it. The question is why? Why does that happen? It's and you. it turns out, you mate <laughs> i wish <laughs> i wish i once got told i look like a serial killer so i don't have to that ties in that's that hurt. low trust organization low trust that, relationship that really hurt uh, it was at a party <laughs> that, that <laughs> one stung the ego a little bit just really part of myself turns out there are three major initial signals that our brains rely on as heuristics as shortcuts to decide whether we trust someone and those three signals are the face and the facial structure. So the areas of your eyes and the mouth in particular, what your eyebrows look like and what kind of facial expressions you're using. Two is any signals of authority or competence. So for example, doctors, police, we instinctively tr trust because we have this association with credibility. And the third is reputation. And this is all about prior beliefs, which directly impact how trustworthy we believe people are. And what I mean by this is the research shows that having a prior perception of how trustworthy we think someone is, so whether someone comes and says, hey, Dan's actually not a trustworthy guy at all, totally impacts the way we believe about a person to the point where we will ignore their trustworthy behavior because we're so biased by this belief. That's a really interesting point, mate, because I'm I'm thinking about like the whole idea of authority bias, particularly when we're looking at signals mm -hmm. of authority and competence and how, you know, when we see a uniform, we think of a particular expertise. And so my question more than anything is take these three major initial signals. What do we have to be aware of then more than anything? My main takeaway from the research was this means we have to be really effortful in fighting our trust biases, especially for those who deserve our trust, but don't look or seem like they do. 
It's basically that old adage, don't judge a book by its cover, but also don't judge a person by what someone else tells you about that person without seeing their behavior first. Because there are so many other factors that go into how they see that person. And if you rely on their words and their reputation, there's a chance you might cull them with the wrong brushstroke. And just to add a little bit of neuroscience sprinkled on top. Magic dust. A, a bit of magic dust, brain dust. There's a researcher named Luke Chang who came up with a trust algorithm. Uh, he's a neuroscientist who has a mathematical model which shows trust is quite predictable in a laboratory setting. And his two core factors are what you experience with someone, but also what you first believe about them. And this really goes to that point that reputation and how people talk about you and the language they use is really, really important in how you're perceived as trustworthy. When I look at this and I really like dig down into it, this whole notion of language, it's so important in breaking trust and building trust. So you've got those initial perceptions, as you said, those judgments. Um, But when I looked into this, I also will use an adage if I can, which is sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's just wrong. Oh, like, whoever whoever came up with BS. that is I'm 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 not gonna sue you, but I'm just gonna say you are inherently wrong. Words hurt. Yeah. <laughs> obviously that person's never been to a therapist's office. <laughs> Literally, words didn't hurt. Like obviously I think it's you know, they're trying to guide you and say, don't be impervious to words, but we are so obviously um, vulnerable yeah. to them because they can have a massive impact on it. And there was two mm-hmm. interesting research studies that were done. I'm not going to go into the, the nuts and bolts, but we've got Eisenberger in 2003 with a title, Does Rejection Hurt? And it basically found that social pain activates brain regions, key in the response of physical pain and correlates with self-reported distress. Mm-hmm. Now, Sam, even further to this, I have to nail in the coffin. Uh, research two, which is Chen, Williams, and so on, 2008, When Hurt Will Not Heal, psychological science paper. Four studies showed that recall of past socially painful situations elicits greater pain than reliving a past physically painful event and has a greater negative impact on cognitively demanding tasks. So take that that adage and just go away because words hurt. It causes emotional pain. I'm getting out to you right now. I just want to let you know. Venting, just absolutely venting right now. (laughs) Who said podcasts aren't therapy? (laughs) And look, I'm going to bring up Dumbledore, which is odd. We're on, I don't know, we're on brain tools, but I'm bringing up Dumbledore. He's got a quote that I think really hits the nail on the head here, which is words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. And it reminds me of Lisa Feldman Barrett's point, which is like, we are arguably the only species that can influence another nervous system through our language. So the way we communicate with each other, the words that we say and how we say it massively impact our levels of rapport and obviously our levels of trust. And you know that, and I know that, and everyone knows that intuitively, because think about all the times people said hurtful things to you when you were a kid. It definitely hurt. <laughs> you know, primal it wounds. Sticks it's and primal stones, wounds. But there is there's some damage there. I still have some comments people used to make about my eyes and the way I look. They definitely still reverberate around my psyche and have left scars for life. So, really great point that people don't really know that you know words do physically hurt in the Sam, brain. your eyes are beautiful. Oh, I just want you to know that. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> the reason the reason words hurt is A, due to our psychology and how we process information, but B, also due to the neurochemical processes that are associated with that. And there's one in particular hormone that you have to talk about if you're going to talk about trust. What's the hormone? Well, it's the trust hormone. Mm. I gave a little Easter egg about it before, OT. 
You know that feeling you get when you have a warm hug from your nan or your mom or your best friend or your partner and your whole body just feels elated. And you also feel this way after being connected with someone or experiencing someone where you really, really share, share an amazing emotional experience. And the question is why? And the answer in the brain is in part due to OT, the trust hormone oxytocin. It's also the connection hormone. So oxytocin is this neuropeptide. It's released by physical touch, sex, motherly bonds, social connection, and it increases our connection, our trust, our bonding, and helps us match our internal states. And what that means is it actually helps us with empathy and theory of mind. This one neuropeptide, this one hormone helps us understand how other people are feeling because it increases synchrony in our brain with other people and awareness of others' emotional states, so thereby increasing uh, our empathy. I'm really glad you clarified OT because I thought you were talking about occupational therapy. For a little bit. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But really good points in terms of just, I suppose, what OT actually looks like. And there was an interesting study done, um, and, you know, we love our studies, Vernon Smith mm-hmm. and we'll call him we'll call him the godfather of this whole OT research, uh, Paul, Paul Zach. And yeah. I'm going to explain this because I, when I saw this and when I like really deep down, I literally, my, my jaw dropped because I thought one, experimental design, really, really cool, but two, outcome, very interesting. So Sam, mm-hmm. I want you to imagine that you are on a computer right now and you can't see another person, but they're actually on another, in another place and they're just chilling there. You're going to send them, okay, money. Let's just assume it's a thousand dollars, okay? You send it across to them and they get 3X the amount. So it's $3,000 now they've got it sitting there. They can choose to either take the money and go, all three grand, that's mine, or they can actually split it with you. And this was the crux of the experiment that Vernon Smith and Dr. Paul Zach actually did. And what they found is when they actually measured OT, by the, they did that by drawing people's arm before and immediately after they made the decisions, they came to the following conclusion, and this is what the data suggested. The more money people received back, the more oxytocin in the brain that was produced by the person who was sending that money back. And this was correlated with trustworthiness, how likely they were to share it. How cool is that? Mm, That's fascinating. So the more trustworthy, the more oxytocin. Pretty much correlated. And just to make sure they absolutely confirmed this, um, they did a basically intranasal spray prior to the sending of it of 24 units of synthetic OT, and it basically doubled. It was correlated with double the amount of money that would be sent. And that whole idea of reducing the fear of trust um, when it comes to a stranger was really, really key. Um, so just want to get your thoughts on that because my jaw dropped. Yeah, it is Incredibly interesting study, and that's because it's also backed up by multiple other studies. Ah, intranasal OT. Triple threat. <laughs> triple threat. So there was another study where they sprayed oxytocin in people's nose, in couples' noses, and they found it increased positive communication and reduce, reduced the stress hormone cortisol in couples having an argument. This was published in the Biological Psychiatry Journal. Very, very prestigious. And there was another one with our good friend, not really our good friend, but maybe one day, <laughs> Dr. Oh, Paul Zach in the esteemed Nature Journal who found oxytocin increases trust in humans. And the same thing, uh, intranasal spray of oxytocin led to more trust in a trust game. So fair bit of data out there, fair bit of research backing this principle. It's absolutely. And again, we're, again, we'll put a caveat there. We're always mindful of just saying like one thing is responsible for trust. Oh, it's obviously going to be you know interconnected with a bunch of other things for sure. But one final point that I just want to make on this is women on average tend to produce more 
oxytocin than men. And there's been some interesting research done into it that of the inhibitors of OT and the enhancers. So estrogen actually, quote unquote, enhances OT production, always linked with that. I'm mindful of the cause and effect relationship. But inhibitors of this are progesterone, epinephrine. So again, you don't want to have high OT when you're in a high stress mode and you need to survive. It's like, hey, there's a tiger. Can I cuddle it? No. (laughs) So fluffy. (laughs) Not a good thing. But also testosterone. That's yeah. what I found very interesting is also an inhibitor um, of, of, of OT. So what the implications of this are, I'm not going to reach to, but I thought it was just a very interesting um, concept uh, to know, the, the, I suppose, the pendulums and the interrelated nature of oxytocin with a bunch of other hormones, neuropeptides, and neurotransmitters. Well, it makes perfect sense when we think about it from a testosterone-inhibiting oxytocin perspective because think about who has some of the highest testosterone levels in society, teenage boys often lack a fair bit of empathy and theory of mind, which is correlated with oxytocin release. Uh, so makes a lot of sense to me. And now that you know a little bit about oxytocin, the trust hormone, and what triggers trust and how trust works, I've got a question for you listening. I want you to take a second and to pause this podcast as soon as I've finished asking my question. Take a second to write down what's been surprising so far. What have you learned that makes sense of something you once knew what can you use? Do this because after this section, we're going to come back with four very practical brain tools for enhancing trust at work between you and your workmates. But take a second, write down those answers and come back because after the break, we're going to have four brain tools for you. Well done. You've made it this far. So if you are loving this Brain Tools episode, share it with one person you actually think can benefit from this episode. Okay, and welcome to the Brain Tools section where we're going to give you four practical brain tools to enhance trust at work between yourself, your teammates, your colleagues, before we do that, a tiny bit of context, if I may. You can talk a context, all right? Context okay. before the content. What is your context, Samuel? Gary V, context over content. Leading <laughs> into this episode, a couple of weeks beforehand, I went to Pastor Mama, which is this dinner in Melbourne, and I sat down with a bunch of randoms because that's part of the experience and proposed the topics we were going to do for Brains at Work, right? I said, here are the five topics. And I'm sitting next to this guy called Stephen And I said, of these topics, these five topics we've got here, which is resilience, trust, connection, leadership, teamwork, which resonates with you most and which ones do you think we should talk about most? And he immediately said, oh, trust and connection. I asked him, Stephen, why? Stephen said, because it's so easy to talk about the importance of trust and connection at work and building rapport, but it's really, really hard to do. So as a minor frame, as a way of thinking about a science-backed method for improving how we connect and get people to trust you. Think about connection and trust as sharing. The people we trust the most are the ones we share the most with, share the most experiences, share the most history, share the most trusted experiences, essentially. And the reason is because of the brain synchronization that happens through sharing emotions, creates these shared memories that bond us together and allow us to understand other people and their behavior And therefore, we can better predict their actions, which is the basis of trust. We expect they're going to do a certain thing and we trust they're going to do it. So that's a bit of a frame as context leading into the brain tools. 
predictability, isn't it? Right. Mm. I know what I'm going to get from you. And I right. think that links with that whole idea of the cognitive trust and the affective trust. Yep. And so I think it's a nice beeline, Sam, into the first brain tool, if I can give it to you. Let's do it. Brain tool numero uno, recognize excellence. Mm. So, Sam, I think, and again, this is coming from personal experience, but having a look at the research, is that often at low trust organizations, there is a very clear lack of recognition and encouragement. Oh, and totally. the questions that people normally ask, or, you know, that employees is like, how do I know if I'm doing well? Like, why am I working this hard? Like, what's the point of doing so? And I think when you have those two questions that have definitely popped up to me before, um, you know, in dealing with employees, but also myself personally, it's really difficult to know what behaviors, attitudes you should actually adopt and repeat that are leading to positive results if you're not given praise or you're not recognized for that. And so the solution, Sam, is very simple. You want to praise excellent behaviors that are leading to excellent results, to leverage the positive feedback loops that actually mean the high trust organization will actually propel and prosper. So that's the solution, if that makes sense so far. That makes a lot of sense so far. And I'm already thinking about how that ties into what we know about the brain. Out of interest, can I ask some color commentary for you? I'm thinking dopamine personally. Yes. Well, I'm thinking dopamine and social rewards, which we know are a massive driver of our behavior. Super interesting as well, because that links super nicely with BJ Skinner's operant conditioning. You remember the good yeah. old experiment, right? Where you had, you had the rat. Okay. Yeah. Just, just for everyone, I'm, I'm not condoning this ethically, all right? This is not a good thing. But BJ Skinner, um, when he was doing this and he coined operant conditioning, which is like positive and negative reinforcement, had a little rat in there. And basically when the rat was in the cage, so to speak, and would press down on a lever, um, when it was red, the light was red, then they get an electric shock. But if it was a white color, then they'd actually press down the lever, they would get back uh, a pellet. And obviously the steady state that was reached is if white, then press, if red, don't press. And I think I'm just simply saying, obviously the link with dopamine reward and goal-directed behavior is really, really clear. And we've been through that in previous episodes. However, I'm not saying treat your colleagues and employees like rats. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not saying get them in like a little workstation and then like get some electric shocks going. I'm simply saying leverage reward, leverage motivation, extrinsic and intrinsic, and it will make a massive, massive difference. You, you hit it, heard it here first, folks. Go get some dog shock collars, put them on your employees, oh, Lord. and shock them anytime they're not behaving. Oh. It does really, really nicely tie in with what we know about reinforcement learning, which is that dopamine-driven learning feedback loop. So really, every time you're praising people in public and you're recognizing excellence, you're reinforcing that behavior through the social reward. Absolutely love it. And so the question becomes like, how do you, how do you go about using this um, in an organization from a work perspective? Now, I think the really important point to highlight here is the praise or the recognition of excellence. The closer it is after the goal has been met, the better. The longer you wait, the less likely you are to have a quote unquote, the, the really key dopamine hit. You want to make sure it's mm. tangible, unexpected, personal, and public. According yep. to the formula, the following formula, which I'll do. But I think one thing I want to leverage massively is unexpected is the key. Novelty and surprise. You want to be mindful of having these formal recognition ceremonies, which do have a time and place, but it can, it can come across a little bit contrived. So, Sam, I've got an example for you. Are you ready? Yeah, please. Give us an example. It's actually about you. Oh. <laughs> Live on air. Let's do this. Sam. Um, I wanted to say, well done, because you absolutely smashed out the podcast digest for our upcoming interviews. And I know you've been putting a lot of work into that. And when I was going over it, the questions that you asked were so well detailed and so well researched. So I think that, you know, the interview is going to be really revealing and valuable. So I just want to say well done. Oh, thank you. I'm definitely going to do more of that now. 
Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. That was not planned at all, was it? Now, <laughs> the key thing of, of that, when we go through this, though, is the formula, right? It's yeah. leveraging the person, the result that you've achieved, the behavioral reason with specific examples, and yeah. then you reinforce that praise. I think the key thing, though, that I say, if you're implementing this, just be mindful of what you praise. Outcome yeah, versus okay. process is the classic case. A lot of direct, Carol Dweck's research goes into when you praise people for the outcome, particularly students, they won't, they're less likely to take risks. They're less likely to do stuff because they're looking at that outcome. Be mindful of the process and outcome so people can reach that cause and effect relationship. And that is brain tool number one, recognize excellence. Brain tool number one. And I like that you recognize my excellence, which is validating my existence a little bit. <laughs> making me feel pretty good. What, what a time to be alive. We live great what, lives, what, don't we? <laughs> what a time to be alive. Makes a really good point that last one about uh, acknowledging process over outcome because you're rewarding the behavior rather than the result which has a whole bunch of other factors that could tie into it you know could be uh, just a sales cycle for example but you wouldn't you wouldn't use recognition without a face you wouldn't just randomly acknowledge people and not announce who it was right You'd hope so. No, I'm just going to You'd type in not. like random random praise generator into Google yeah. and just let's, let's, let's just go. Let's go. Well, can, can you imagine in a company having an award and then not saying who it was for? Someone oh. won an award this month. Well done. No one? Yeah, you wouldn't trust that. And that leads really well into brain tool number two, which is add a face to everything. So from an overview perspective, high view, with everything remote these days, one simple way to build more trust is to add a face into every email Slack's message, DM, memos, because seeing a smiling face subconsciously boosts our perception of trust. Smiles are a signal of no threat in the animal kingdom, in the human kingdom too. That's what we look at. So really, really simple. Just adding a face, whether that's an emoji or the face of a person, a human being, is going to enhance trust in those situations. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of like the the science behind it, what are you thinking? So we know that the fusal form facial area, FFA, or the fusal form gyrus, which processes face, uh, is also tied to the regions of our brain that process trust. And when we see a smiling face, effectively, we instantly have this trigger of, I can trust this person, I can trust this face. And there's a, a little bit of research out there that shows that this also applies to emojis because we process them the same way as we process real faces. I'll give you an example, right? Imagine someone saying, you say, hey, I've just had this project. I've done this work. Is it good? And you, you know, let me know what you think. And someone sends back a message and say, says, oh, it's okay. Just okay. Or they send you a message saying, oh, you know, okay, thanks. And a smiley face. Which one's going to leave you feeling like you did a better job? You'd hope the one with the smiley face. I'm not gonna lie. The two words I hate the most are okay and fine. Oh, it's so bad out there. <laughs> oh, I sit there, especially with the full stop. If it's just like fine, full stop, I'm like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And it's because text lacks emotional context because so much of our emotional context is nonverbal. It's the way we smile or look or the tone of our voice. Basically, the way you can implement this tool is in your text messaging. Add a face, add an emoji because hey, they're processed the same way in the brains. But in any sales or marketing emails, you can add a smiling headshot to your email signature. Or if you're sending out a company memo, add a photo of the smiling CEO. Or if you've got a web page, add a photo of smiling customers. Or if you're communicating with people via text, rather than sending just an okay, okay and a smiley face is 10x better and it feels a lot better. So just add a face to any message 
because every case and every message needs a face. It makes sense as well because when you were talking earlier about when we talked about the idea of biases and heuristics, I want to be really, really mindful of the judgments people make early on when they're receiving a message either for the first time or consistently. How would you go about implementing this from a work perspective? I can tell you really simply, the way I go is I almost never send a Slack message or an email or a DM without some kind of smile in there, even if that's just a basic emoji emoticon or the one you wear use symbols. I always just have some form of face in that communication because it humanizes it. And that's how I would use it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think just adding to that, always just be probably mindful of um, the content of your message. I know we talk about context and content, but you don't want to have a smiley face off saying you're fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, a, as an example. But yeah, it's a really good point. It's it's worrisome that we have to add that caveat, but it's so true. <laughs> it's just like, you know, when you're telling someone bad news and you're just smiling yeah. the entire time, you want to obviously make sure that you've got congruity between Hi, your message. you're fired. Go, Hi, you're fired. No, but I, uh, yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, so that's it. Brain tool number two, which is add a face to all your, your messages uh, to enhance trust. Yeah, beelines really nicely into brain tool number three because we talked about the idea of recognizing excellence. We want to make sure we're communicating excellence in a way that is obviously warm and human. And then obviously in these messages, you're going to be commuting something and you're commun- mm. communicating information. And so brain tool number three is let information flow. Sam. Okay. Let uh, let information flow. Yeah. Well, my analogy for this is rivers. Okay. Because like this is I, again, I know this is like a very lazy analogy, but I think it works quite well. Which is if you've got a river, right, and you've like you're actually looking at the flow of water, Sam. What would happen if I put up a massive dam? Uh, you would build a dam. You'd build a blockage, and we'd go swimming there, and beavers would come. Yeah, beavers would be great. be a great time, but then the water won't make it obviously to the ocean, which is not what we want, right? Because obviously we're all about information flow. And that's the analogy that I've got for you, right? If you put up all these bottlenecks and blockades, the information can't travel freely throughout mm. the organization. And I think it's always very important to recognize, like from an employee-employer perspective, when you're not told where you're going and you're not told why you're going and how you're going, then it's really hard to be engaged. Right. And that's where ambiguity bias comes in. Like you're more likely to take the path of least resistance when you don't know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, you end up doing nothing. And what was really interesting, there was a stat from Citigroup and LinkedIn in 2014 that said only 40% of employees report that they are well informed about goals, strategies, and tactics. And I sat there and said, wow. So there's things that are being kept from people. And that makes sense. You've got to be mindful of what you are communicating, but not knowing those things seems fundamental, Sam. Well, it does, and it ties really well into what we've talked about on prior episodes about stress and managing well-being, where when we're uncertain about certain events, that uncertainty actually exacerbates our stress response because we're unable to predict what comes next. Absolutely, and I think that makes the solution very clear. It's like we want to make sure we're sharing information between departments, between colleagues, between leaders, and so on. And the proof's in the pudding. Like a 2015 study of 2.5 million manager-led teams in 195 countries. It's a lot of countries. Actually, that's commensurate with how many countries are listening to this right now, hopefully. But um, they found uh, workforce engagement improved when supervisors had some form of daily communication with direct reports. So it becomes really important to understand how you go about communicating this information and the structures and processes you put in place. Pack it up. Pack it in. That's it. That's all you need to know. Just do it. No. <laughs> the, the real question is with that really, really interesting research and this idea of information flow like a river, how do you actually use that? What does that look like in the workplace? 
Yeah, so I'm going to funnel it down, uh, hopefully, um, from a company perspective and then obviously like sort of a weekly and daily perspective. Yeah. Um, I think from a company, it's like how are we going is the question that people want to know because people like to win, right? And if people mm-hmm. aren't winning, right, then clearly want to be mindful of why we're losing and what that actually looks like. And so, again, a lot of companies do this, but, you know, your Monday morning meetings when you're setting up the week. But I think what normally gets misconstrued or is wrong is what you're actually communicating there. And I think very clearly, it's like, what are we doing in terms of our progress towards our goals? And as individuals, how are you going in reference to those goals? And my, my only thing that I just want to be mindful here, if you are um, a leader in an organization or part of a company from uh, what I can gather, is if you're worried that you're, as a company, you're not doing very well, you still want to try and communicate that obviously in the best way possible. You'd be really surprised how galvanized people are when they care about the mission, they care about the people they're with, and they know that they're you know, not doing fantastically well. They, are, they normally can bounce back very well. And again, there's a lot of research to suggest, suggest that, but Sam, want to get your thoughts. It makes perfect sense to me. I'm just thinking about it when you come from the perspective of people telling you they're struggling with something, uh, your immediate response is you, you want to rally to their side. Yeah, you want to help. And I think the the only final things to say about this is like daily progress. You know, you have your, your yeah. daily meeting of five, 10 minutes. Hey, what are your, what's your intention today? What information do you need from me? Um, how can I support you if you are the leader or you're actually in the team? And then office hours in the calendar. If you literally are, you know, put in there being like four to five, anyone can contact me here. I'm happy to get on a Zoom or happy to get on Microsoft Teams. Even if no one rocks up, the fact that there's a safe space there means that the time that it is required and someone comes to the party means you'll end up preventing a lot of downstream problems from happening. So that is brain tool number three, let information flow like a river. Let it flow like a river. That office hours idea is absolutely brilliant because it's about the signal of trust it sends. Such a good point. I actually didn't think about it like that. Really good. It's a signal of trust. And speaking of signals of trust, we're going to brain tool number four, which is admit it. This is a really hard one for leader. As an overview, trust is reciprocal. You build trust by admitting things that are vulnerable and true by sharing those emotional experiences because doing so shows trust in the other person. Give you an example. When you meet someone who's very honest for the first time, you almost instinctively trust them, especially when they start telling you about things going wrong with their life. And that is as a result of that neural synchronization, that brain synchrony that happens, that triggering and release of oxytocin. Mm. So what would be then the science behind something like this? Because reciprocity is something that's talk, spoken about a lot in influences. Robert, Ch- Robert Cialdini talks about reciprocity and liking. What, are, what underpins that? When we look at it, there's a really great piece of research out there by Anna Brock at University of Mannheim, looked at seven studies, hundreds of participants, and found this effect called the beautiful mess effect. And effectively, mm. what that says is there's a massive difference in the way we perceive showing vulnerability, admitting mistakes, disclosing information, and how other people actually view this vulnerability really, really positively. And Anna's comment was that self-disclosure, so admitting things can build trust, seeking help can boost learning, admitting mistakes can foster forgiveness, and confessing one's romantic feelings can lead to new relationships. Mm. taking that first step isn't it it's taking the leap of faith it's actually you know you go in and then you know someone might come to the party it really is and it ties into what we know about the the neuroscience around predicting other people's behaviors and how that ties into trust as well because when people tell you how they're feeling when they admit something when the information is flowing then it's much easier for you to guess what they're trying to do because they've already told you and therefore to act accordingly and and that's what ties into this trust 
Yeah, people like those that are similar to them, right? And you can only mm. really quote unquote judge if someone's similar to you by actually communicating and admitting and actually leaning in, as Cheryl Sandberg would say. Now, oh, yep. <laughs> how do you use it, my friend? This one is really simple to use, but really painful for a lot of people who find this quite scary and confronting. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a couple examples of how to admit things and how to self-disclose to build trust. Starting a new job, start off by admitting something that's about yourself, that's out there, that's a little bit vulnerable that people can connect with. Maybe it's a weird hobby. Maybe it's something you do on the weekend that you think people are going to find strange. Maybe it's something personal about your childhood because this gives people something to grab onto, to connect with and shares that emotional experience with them. If you're a leader, leader or manager, publicize your mistakes. We just talked about information flow, but owning your mistakes and putting them out there and admitting them, there is a lot of research that shows this also increases your perception of credibility internally in a company by owning your mistakes and putting them out there. And it builds trust uh, in that reciprocal manner we talked about just before. Or if you're a salesperson, one thing you can do is to admit that your product or service can't do everything. Own the faults, be forced. To kind of summarize it, this brain tool of admit it, it's basically transparency breeds trust. And so anytime you're self-disclosing information and being really, really transparent and honest, you're creating a situation where trust is created and connection is formed. Mm, interesting. And it's something that like when I'm getting this right now, and I, I really do like this brain tool, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of the, all our all our heuristics, all our energy, like we're almost, we always want to protect ourselves oh, and absolutely. say, no, no, I haven't done anything wrong. No, I'm perfect. No, I've got this. But what mm. you're saying is you know, taking that first step, being vulnerable can, you know, can increase your credibility. And then throughout the organization, I'd be so interested to know in the 2015, what happened to Wells Fargo, what the leaders were doing. Were they the ones leaning in and be like, hey, did I make a mistake? Again, I don't know. And please don't sue us, Wells Fargo, because again, you're a lot bigger than us, but <laughs> I'd be interested to know. <laughs> I'd be very interested to know. And I'd be interested to know people who are listening to this out there, whether they've had an experience with this, whether they've had a leader come out and admit something's gone terribly wrong. And I'm thinking about, uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett in their annual address every year, the first thing they do is they admit all the investment mistakes they made. And then they go on to tell you how they're working wow. on those. And the result is by putting them out there and putting them and putting that information into the hands of the people who could withdraw their money, they are showing a massive amount of trust. And as I said, trust is reciprocal. So this process of admitting things is actually a great way to build enhanced trust. So good. Very good. All right, so let's go back to the top, summarize the brain tools, give them back again, starting off with brain tool number one. Brain tool number one, recognize excellence. Always be mindful that in low trust organizations, there's a lack of recognition and a lack of encouragement. We want to make sure that people know what they're doing is the right thing to do and there's positive feedback loops there. So just make sure that when someone does something well, do it immediately so that it's unexpected, it's personal, and it's public, and make sure that you praise the outlaw process just as much as the outcome, and you'll be very, very clear to create um, sort of that positive culture and that high trust within any organization. That's brain tool number one, recognize excellence. And you wouldn't have a reward without a face to it, which leads into brain tool number two, add a face to all your communication because we know faces subconsciously boost trust, specifically smiling faces. So whether that's an emoji, a headshot, anywhere you can add a face to a contextless text message, do it. And that's going to enhance trust in your communications. And that's brain tool number two. Leads beautifully into brain tool number three, let information flow. Again, rivers, 
want to let the water flow, obviously you need to have dams occasionally as it goes through, but it's the same as information. When people don't know something, they normally end up doing nothing. And we want to be mindful that the sharing of information, both positive and negative in terms of good news and bad news is super, super important. Hold those daily office hours, daily progress, communicate where the company is at, how they're going. And as per Sam's really good point, if they're not doing fantastically well, make sure you look to admit it. And that's brain tool number three, which is let information flow. And speaking of admitting it, brain tool number four, the best way to build trust is to admit something, self-disclose information because trust is reciprocal. Whether that is admitting something painful and true about yourself, sharing an experience from your past with a new team as a leader, talking about your mistakes and failures you make, which actually makes you more credible. Transparency breeds trust and admitting and self-disclosing information is a one-way street to improving trust with those people around you in your workplace. Mm, four, four brain tools. I think they're quality. I hope they're quality. Do we trust their quality? Yes, we do. <laughs> I, I trust their quality. Do I trust the sources? Eh, maybe. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we're such yeah, – be really skeptical of us. Yeah. Sam, 80-20 is always to wrap up this part three of Brains at Work. My 80-20 is trust is human transparency. A culture of trust is a culture of transparency because antiness is the antidote to distrust toxicity. Mm, and the beeline into that of my 80-20 is a lack of trust is the root of most companies' people problems and remembering that yep. business is people. So be really mindful that all these downstream consequences that you're seeing the symptoms are normally at the root cause of a lack of trust. I'm, I'm feeling this episode. <laughs> this is hitting me in the feels a little bit. <laughs> it's turned into our own personal therapy episode. Yeah. But- there you have it, Sam. That's part three of Brains at Work. And I think um, we leave people just being mindful to focus on that implementation. In the first section, obviously, you know, writing down the key things that you've learned, pick your favorite brain tool. Pick your favorite brain tool, implement it straight away at work tomorrow, the day after, and get cracking because, again, we want to leverage that self-directed neuroplasticity. But, uh, Sam, I reckon that's bye for now. That's bye for us and see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you've made it all the way through, we really appreciate you. If you do want to support the podcast, you can go and subscribe on Apple, iTunes, on Spotify or whatever platform you're on. Or if you really, really, really want to show your love, one amazing thing you could do for us is just share a link of this podcast. Grab that button and drop it into a WhatsApp chat, a messenger chat, or share it with the Slack chat with your friends at work. Now, Kieran, what have we got for next week? Next week's a big one, episode 27 on the neuroscience of teamwork. That is part four of the Brains at Work series. We can't wait to see you then.